and welcome to the Ivis World Podcast. I'm Vicki Wolak, one of our editors, and I'm here with three analysts, John Haddad, Claire O'Connor, and Marissa Lifshitz. And we're going to talk about recent cyber attacks on certain companies. So earlier this month, on September 7th, Equifax announced that it had been the victim of a cyber attack earlier this summer. It is estimated that about 143 million consumers had their social security numbers stolen. And it is so bad, not because of the number of hacks, but because of what it is. Social security number hacks are considered the holy grail of identity theft because of the access it provides. While Equifax has been the latest high-profile company to have been the victim of a cyber attack, they are not alone. According to a semantic report from 2015, the number of cybercrime victims hit 594 million worldwide. And according to Peter Singer from the Brookings Institution, 97% of Fortune 500 companies have been hacked. Clearly, this is not an Equifax-specific issue. So we brought in today's guests to talk a little bit more about other industries that have been affected by recent cyber attacks, what happened, how the companies or industries affected responded, and lingering effects on the industries as a whole. So to kick off this discussion, we're going to take it back a few years with another high-profile cyber hack. This time, it was J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the largest commercial banks in the world. And I'm going to turn it over to our first guest, Claire, to talk a little bit more about this hack. Hi, Claire. Welcome to the studio. Hi. So in October uh, 2014, J.P. Morgan Chase stated in an SEC filing that more than 70 million households and 7 million businesses may have had private data compromised, which in turn, that's about 83 million customers. However, when reporting this hack, they did say that there wasn't any unusual fraud related to the incident that they saw afterwards. Like you said, J.P. Morgan is a major player in the commercial banking industry. They have about 9.6% market share in the $553.2 billion industry. So that's a huge portion of the commercial banking industry that suffered from this enormous hack. Right. So you mentioned, Claire, that They didn't see any unusual fraud related to the incident, even though so many people's information was hacked. So in reality, how bad was this hack? To put it in perspective, it was the worst and biggest breach of customer data from a financial institution in the United States history. Even though nothing happened after, it's still very relevant to talk about because it did kind of wake up consumers about the issue of cybersecurity in regards to banking and their personal information that they keep with banks. Could you tell us a little bit more about how J.P. Morgan responded to this attack? They had an incredibly strong response after. Following the hack, J.P. Morgan invested heavily in security and built a security team of more than 1,000 people, including ex-military, whose sole purpose was to fend against and deal with security breaches. In their quarterly report that they published in August 2015, J.P. Morgan Chase highlighted that the budget for cybersecurity was going to increase to half a billion dollars. So they responded really strongly, which helped them among their customers and consumers. So about the consumer reaction, what happened to the J.P. Morgan customer base after this hack? So following the hack, the consumer became much more aware of cybersecurity and of the potential that their information could be stolen. And there was an outpour of ways to protect yourself against this. Additionally, it's important to take into account that J.P. Morgan Chase only had evidence that contact information was stolen. 
So like email addresses, personal names and home addresses. If it had been more important information like social security numbers, the consumer reaction might have been more negative. But JP Morgan as a company did not suffer that much. According to Ivis World, their industry-relevant revenues increasing at an annualized rate of 0.3% to $52.9 billion. So that's important to note because even though they're increasing at a slower rate, they're still following in trend with the industry overall. So they didn't have that much of a negative impact due to the hack. That's very interesting because one would think that some of the most sensitive information on consumers would be in commercial banks. However, another industry where even more sensitive information than just addresses and email addresses were kept was the retail industry. And the retail industry has also been the victim of several high-profile data breaches over the past few years. So to talk more about retail, I'm going to turn it over to our second guest, Marissa. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Vicki. So a couple of years ago, Target Corporation suffered a major cyber attack. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened? Absolutely. So to give some background, Target is a significant player in the warehouse clubs and super centers industry. This industry has an estimated revenue of $459.7 billion in 2017, with Target's industry-specific revenue accounting for $14.1 billion, giving the company 3.1% market share. In December 2013, Target Corporation announced a cyber attack in which hackers stole data from up to 40 million customers. This data consisted of debit and credit card numbers, CVV security codes, and payment card expiration dates. Now, what made this attack especially high profile was the period in which it occurred. The attack affected customers shopping at Target stores in the three weeks between Black Friday and December 17th, right at the peak of the holiday shopping season. Now, this was a two-stage, sophisticated attack in which hackers were able to undermine Target's point-of-sale system and transfer sensitive consumer data to an external virtual server. Target later announced that an additional 70 million customers may have had their contact information compromised as well, including names, email addresses, and phone numbers, bringing the total number of affected customers up to 110 million. Wow, so that was a pretty significant attack from a consumer's perspective. So how did Target respond? Target was criticized for being slow to respond to the attack. Now, some say that Target may have feared losing customers during the peak of the busiest shopping season of the year. In fact, the retailer even offered customers a 10% store-wide discount immediately following the attack in an attempt to induce customers back to shopping at the store. Still, the company reported that sales fell by 46% that fiscal quarter year-on-year after over 100 lawsuits were filed in court against the retailer, Target agreed to pay customers with evidence that they were affected by the attack up to $10,000 in settlements. Furthermore, the company pledged to spend $100 million upgrading its security. However, the CEO was eventually forced to step down in May of the following year as a direct consequence of the attack and the company's failure to act more quickly. So clearly this cyber attack had many negative effects on the Target Corporation immediately after the attack. But what I find interesting is that this attack was not the end of Target. Target is still a very popular shopping destination, especially during the holiday season. So Marissa, could you tell us why 
or how Target survived this attack so well? Target has the advantage of having extreme brand loyalty that keeps customers returning, even just months after the attack. In fact, although the company's stock experienced a 10% drop in price in the immediate aftermath of the security breach, by the end of February of the following year, Target had actually experienced its highest percentage stock price regain in five years. However, the attack did have some lasting effects on Target's revenue. Target's industry-relevant revenue increased at an annualized rate of 0.7% over the five years to 2017, but did fall 3.8% in the year of the attack. Furthermore, it was outpaced by overall industry growth, which increased at an overall rate of 0.9% during the same five-year period. So it seems to me, Marissa, that in the aftermath of this attack, it was brand loyalty that kept Target afloat. Is that correct? I would definitely agree. Okay, but not all industries have the luxury of brand loyalty to keep them afloat after a cyber attack. In contrast, in the healthcare sector, oftentimes it was the difficulty of switching healthcare providers that kept consumers with their healthcare provider after a cyber attack. It was just two years ago that Anthem, a major player in the healthcare industry, suffered a major cyber attack. Marissa, could you give us a few more details on that? Definitely. So to give some backgrounds, like you said, Vicki, Anthem is a major player in the health and medical insurance industry with an estimated 11.9% market share in 2017. Now, in February of 2015, Anthem disclosed that 78.8 million patient records containing highly sensitive information, including patient names, birth dates, home addresses, social security numbers, medical IDs, and employment information had been stolen by hackers. Furthermore, the data breach extended into multiple brands that Anthem used to market its healthcare, with victims of the attack including both current and former customers of Anthem and other insurers affiliated with Anthem. A statewide investigation into the attack concluded that hackers were likely acting on behalf of a foreign government. So how does this attack differ from the ones we've already talked about? Well, when we're speaking about a company in the health insurance industry, when hackers are able to gain access to patients' medical records and insurance information, there's a chance that that information can be used for medical identity theft, in which stolen personal information is used to obtain medical care or surgery, purchase prescription drugs, or submit fake medical billings. This information can also potentially be sold on the black market, where it can be used to create entirely new medical identities based on the data. Medical identity theft can be much more difficult to detect and remediate than typical financial identity fraud, because the thief's own medical treatment and diagnoses can get mixed up with the stolen electronic health records, complicating care for victims for years to come. Wow, that sounds pretty scary. How did Anthem respond? Anthem agreed to pay $115 million in settlements, but did not admit to any wrongdoing or that any individuals were harmed as a result of the attack. The company also offered two years of free credit monitoring and identity protection services to all individuals whose data may have been impacted. Moving into the consumer reaction, a survey taken three months after the attack said 45% of individuals polled reported Anthem was a better company than similar insurers. Before the breach, that number was 51%. Now that's a pretty small drop, indicating that the attack did not significantly erode consumer confidence. So do you think that natural conditions of the health and medical insurance industry made it possible for Anthem to bounce back so quickly? 
Yes, definitely. I think that the complexity of the industry made it more difficult for people to switch insurance carriers. So the Anthem cyber attack was different than the other attacks we've talked about in many ways, not the least of which being that it is presumed to be the work of a foreign government. That was also a similar situation to one of the most high-profile data breaches in recent years on Sony Corporation, which happened in October of 2014. So I'm going to turn it back over to Claire. And Claire, could you give us a quick refresher? Uh, This was probably one of the cyber attacks that was most talked about in the news for the longest period of time. But because this is the news cycle in 2017, can you give us a little bit of a summary as to what happened? Yeah, definitely. So like you said, the hack happened in October 2014. Hackers broke into the computer systems of Sony Pictures Entertainment and stole confidential documents and posted them online in the following weeks. The stolen information exposed email chains between executives and actors and other personal information like contracts, salary lists, social security numbers of employees, and five movies, one of which was yet to be released. So they stole a plethora of information. And I'm assuming the one that was yet to be released was the Seth Rogen comedy, The Interview. Yeah, that actually connects to kind of how Sony responded after this hack. They canceled plans to release The Interview, which was a highly controversial movie, which they felt could have been one of the causes for this hack. So they canceled the plans to release it theatrically on Wednesday. In addition to that, they also hired an anti-piracy firm that tried to remove links to download this information to prevent people from accessing the stolen information, like the leaked email chains. So you said that this particular movie might have been a reason as to why Sony was targeted in particular. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? The interview is a film about the North Korean dictator, so they felt that the hackers were targeting Sony particularly, which is important to note because this kind of hack wasn't necessarily a target on the entertainment industry or the movie and video production industry, whereas they were specifically targeting this specific corporation. So unlike the other hacks we've discussed so far in this episode, the Sony Corporation didn't have much consumer information on file What these hackers were after was intellectual property. So that being said, what was the general consumer response to this attack? Brand perception for Sony fell dramatically as a result for this attack. According to the YouGov Brand Index service, which pulls about 4,300 consumers per day in a sample that's representative of the United States population, their brand index is a weighted metric indicating a positive or negative perception, and immediately following the hack, Sony fell to 11 from 13, and then in the following weeks, it fell to 3. It's important to keep in mind that this wasn't the only hack that Sony had become victim to. They were also hacked in 2011. Their PlayStation network was compromised, and personal information of millions of gamers were stolen. So it's definitely important to note that consumers were well aware of this and had an idea that this wasn't kind of the first time that Sony had fell victim to this kind of attack. The negative impact of the hack can be seen in their revenue. Sony's industry-relevant revenue is falling at an annualized rate of 1.6% to $4.1 billion over the five years to 2017 in the movie and video production industry. After 2014, Sony's industry-relevant revenue decreased by 9.2% from $5.2 billion to $4.7 billion in 2015. This contrasts with the industry at large. The movie and video production industry is growing at an annualized rate of 2.5% to $43.9 billion over the five years to 2017. So it just shows you that immediately following the hack, Sony's revenue dropped and has continued to drop and is not following the same 
same trend as the industry, which can be directly related to the negative consumer perception that they received after the hack. So one of the most interesting things about this attack for me was that, like I said, it wasn't targeting specific consumer information, it was targeting intellectual property. I think there's a false notion that only industries such as banks or healthcare industries can suffer a cyber attack. But I think what the Sony attack shows is that in the age of the internet, any industry can suffer a cyber attack. So we're going to wrap things up by turning it to our third guest, John, and he's going to talk a little bit more about cybersecurity in general and what companies might do to be able to protect themselves. Yeah, Vicky, thank you. So I definitely agree that there's no one industry that is riped or that is the only target of cybercrime. Like we said in the intro, there's uh, 97% of the Fortune 500 companies were hacked over the past couple of years. And this ranges from tech to construction to manufacturing to finance. So no matter what, a company is definitely a target. And it's also worth noting that 50% of small businesses were hacked between 2015 and 2016. So that's 14 million businesses, which range from daycare centers to doggy daycare centers to moving companies to whatever it is. I mean, these companies will get hacked if hackers see that they're an easy target. And the sad part about all this is that most companies, the big and small, they are easy targets. Their passwords are very simple. They don't have up-to-date security measures. Small companies, they don't do enough. Big companies don't do enough. Even as a software security business is growing at 4% annually between 2012 and 2017, and fraud detection services is growing at 20% between those five years, companies are still not doing enough to solve this problem. And if we can touch back on Equifax for one second, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, actually said that he's not surprised that this happened. So Dimon obviously has, uh, has some history with this. JPMorgan got hacked a couple years ago. And it's sad to see that he's not surprised by this because he works with, with Equifax. They're basically partners. JP Morgan supplies Equifax with data, and then Equifax gives JP Morgan Chase back this data, but with a bit more analysis so that JP Morgan can decide whether or not to give someone a loan. So I guess what we can conclude from that data and those testimonies you just mentioned, John, is that A, this is a widespread problem and it's not just concentrated to a few industries, and B, cyber attacks happen a lot more often than the media reports. Would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Um, I liken it to if you're watching SportsCenter and you're watching a baseball game, they only show you the home runs mainly. But there are singles and there are doubles and there are triples that happen throughout the entire game. And there are thousands of attacks that happen every single day that we just never hear about. It's the once a year, the, the twice a year, you're going to hear about 100 million accounts got stolen or social security numbers got hacked. But that happens so infrequently that we turn our attention away from these cybersecurity measures after a couple of weeks. Because then there's a new story that's breaking, even though this is happening every single second of the day. And also, if consumers thought every second of every day about all of the cyber attacks that were going on, I think we'd all go crazy. And the interesting thing about these cyber attacks is cyber hackers don't even need to use the stolen information. This information can simply be stolen as an intimidation tactic. Yeah, and that's also one of the scary parts. We don't know the motives behind most of these attacks, with the exception of Sony, which you know we think is an attack caused by North Korea based on the movie that Sony was set to release. We really don't ever know whether it was a country or a foreign entity behind any of these attacks. We don't know if it was some guy in their basement. We don't know if it was a school club. We don't know what it is. We don't know why they do it. We don't know who does it. In fact, after J.P. Morgan got hacked a couple years ago, President Obama was given information by his Homeland Security team every single day about the hack. And the one question they couldn't answer was why. 
Nobody knew why they did it. Nobody knew who did it. And until you figure out the who and the why, you're really not going to know the how. How can we stop this? And this is going to keep on going until we can finally solve why these are occurring in the first place. So as you said, we may not be able to solve the why or the how these things are happening, but is there anything consumers can do now to protect themselves against a cyber attack? Yeah, so there's a couple different things. First of all, privacy advocates and experts in the security field, they always tell people not to use open Wi-Fi. So if, you know, always be aware if you're at a Starbucks or if you're at an airport, because somebody can always, using the same Wi-Fi as you get into your computer. And another thing that experts say to do is to enable two-step verification on all of your accounts so that basically you enter your password and then that's the first step. The second step will be Gmail or Facebook or Yahoo Mail will shoot you a text message with a code. And that means that only using your phone, you have that code and then you can enter your account that way. Would a security question also be another form of two-step verification? For some companies and some websites, yeah. Most companies and most websites have their own two-step verification process. I know Google has, you enter your password and then you enter the code that's sent to your text. I know that Mint.com has something similar. So it really depends on what website you're using. And unfortunately, not all websites, not all companies use this. So sometimes it's just as easy as writing your password. And another sad part is that so many people's password is password or password is spelled backwards or their first name, their last name. Uh, so it's really simple sometimes to get into an account. All right, that about wraps it up for this episode of the Ibis World Podcast. Thank you so much to Claire, Marissa, and John for joining me in the studio. If you like this podcast, make sure you rate and subscribe on iTunes. I'm Vicki Wolak, and I will see you next time.